Good morning. Missed worshiping with you the past few months, but I've had the privilege of serving as interim pastor at Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church, and by the Lord's grace, they've called a new senior pastor who, Lord willing, may well be installed in March. I'm going to miss the good people of Chattanooga Valley, but I look forward to sitting beside my wife and joining with you in the worship of our Lord and King. Let's pray together before we turn to the scripture. Father, as we look to your word, open our eyes, open our minds, change our hearts and our wills. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Please look at Revelation chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. John uh, is an old man. He um, has been faithful in his witness to Jesus, and because of that faithfulness, because the preaching of Jesus suggests that he is the king instead of Caesar, that uh, John has been exiled to the island of Patmos, uh, and there he receives uh, the words that we find and the visions that are recorded for us here in the book of Revelation. And John writes, beginning in verse 5, chapter 1, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Well, a few weeks ago, when I spoke in chapel at Covenant College, I began by reciting the first verse of the college hymn, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being's ransomed powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. You know, to sing sincerely those words is to make a sincere and solemn vow. It is to vow 
to give your whole being, your heart, soul, strength, and mind, to give it not to some idea or to some esoteric ideal, but to give your all to a man, to the man, to the God-man, to Jesus the Christ. Now you realize that most, not all, I mean almost all in this day and age, most would view you making such a vow as quaint, as at best old-fashioned sentimentality. They would view it as quaint and if not, in fact, utter foolishness. To make such a vow to Jesus based upon what? Based upon your confidence that the scriptures, what they teach you about Jesus, that what they teach is true. But why do you believe such a thing? I mean, the argument will be thrown into your face. Listen, your scriptures are not alone. There are many so-called scriptures in the world. For example, the most obvious one perhaps for us being the Quran. There are many other scriptures. So why in the world are you so confident that the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are alone the very word of God when there are so many other scriptures to which you could turn beside these 66 books. Of course, the, the bottom line argument to that question is one that the unbeliever just doesn't get the underlying I mean the argument to that question is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where you are told that because the Holy Spirit of God has entered into your heart you know that these are spiritual words that teach spiritual truths that are totally and completely true infallibly inerrantly true And therefore, what they teach you about Jesus is true. And therefore, you now embrace those truths as true. And therefore, you now embrace Jesus as the one who is shown to you in those scriptures. Graciously, the Lord enables you to understand all that but graciously and I do think it's gracious the Lord provides for you scriptures that are so utterly unique I mean they are just staggeringly unique in comparison to all the other so called sacred scriptures of this world And how are they unique? They are unique, at least in this one fashion. They are unique in that you have 66 books 
that are written over a period of some 1,400 years, written by 40 or more authors. And yet when you read and study those scriptures written over 1,400 years by 40 or more authors, you find that all of those scriptures have one controlling focus. And that is Jesus. These scriptures anticipate his coming. These scriptures tell about his coming. And these scriptures then explain to you. And they expand for you. Your understanding of the importance and the significance of his first coming. And his promised return. Now that claim could be illustrated in many, many ways. You know, personally, I am really eager. (laughs) I am eager to hear Jesus repeat the scripture lesson that he gave to the two on the road to Emmaus. When the gospel of Luke just sort of tells us in a tantalizing fashion that Jesus explained to them how all of scripture focuses upon him I mean I want to look up Luke and say well why didn't you share that but I guess it would have made for a pretty long gospel but I look forward to one day hearing that lesson in which Jesus explains how all of the Old Testament focused upon him is focused upon him, anticipates him, anticipates his coming. Now, this morning, just to illustrate that rather briefly, we're going to look particularly here at Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6. Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6, because these two verses certainly serve as one illustration of how Scripture, all of Scripture, focuses on Jesus. Scripture is written, this revelation written by John, exiled on on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter 4. He tells us that the Holy Spirit carried him into the throne room of heaven where he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And he also takes note of an intriguing scroll sealed with seven seals. Now, remember what's taken place up until this time. In the opening chapters of Revelation, John is promised that he will be shown the unfolding of God's redemptive plan for the ages. Well, John knows that this scroll contains the revelation that he's been promised. But you find him in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 5 weeping because at first it seems that no one is, is able to open the scroll. But then John is told to stop weeping because there is one who is worthy to open the scroll. And of course it's Jesus as the book of Revelation will make clear. Now in Revelation 5... Verses 5 and 6, John sees Jesus. And Jesus is described for us 
by an angel and by John. Now look at verse 5. The first thing John is told about Jesus is that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, that immediately takes us back to the first book of the Bible. That immediately takes us back to Genesis, where we meet Judah. And to tell you the truth, if all you knew is what you knew from first meeting Judah, it would seem rather strange for Jesus and for Judah to be linked. Because in Genesis 37 and 38, Judah, Judah's the brother who initiates the sale of Joseph into slavery. Judah's the one who marries a Canaanite, contrary to his father's wishes and God's commands. And it is Judah who is guilty of an incestuous relationship with his daughter-in-law. Sort of a despicable man early on in those closing chapters of Genesis. But by God's grace, 20 years later, Judah's heart has mercifully changed. It is so changed that he is the one who offers to take his brother Benjamin's place as the slave of Egypt's prime minister, which of course is his brother Joseph, but he doesn't know that, But Judah offers to take the place of his brother Benjamin, who the prime minister is threatening to enslave, take me instead of Benjamin. And in doing so, Judah becomes the first person in scripture to offer up his life for the sake of another. Well, then when you move towards the end of Genesis even further in Genesis 49 verses 9 and 10 you listen as Judah is blessed by his father Jacob and Jacob speaking of Judah he calls him a lion's cub and then he declares that the scepter the scepter that symbol of sovereign authority the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff until the tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples plural not just the people of Israel the peoples plural that prophecy is initially partially fulfilled some 800 years later when from Judah's tribe, from the tribe of Judah, David is chosen to be king of Israel. And as David reigns as king of Israel, the Lord promises him in 2 Samuel 7 that your house, your kingdom, your throne will last forever. It's the Lord's promise. It will last forever. But 400 years after David's reign, David's kingdom is devastated by the Babylonians. And it appears, it appears, humanly speaking, that the line of David has ended. And in fact, 
for the next 600 years, no descendant of David, no one from the tribe of Judah ever reigns as king over the Lord's covenant people. But then, a thousand years after David, 600 years after the Babylonian invasion, a virgin named Mary, who is of the house of David, who is of the tribe of Judah, the virgin is told, to you a son will be born, to whom will be given the throne of his father David and he will reign forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Genesis, the Gospels just tied directly together. Scriptures probably written, who knows? Who knows, 1400 years apart and they just tie together now Jacob has called Judah a lion's cub back in Genesis 49 but but Jesus is no cub he is the lion of the tribe of Judah the one to whom all tribute is to come to whom all people will prove obedient who will reign forever and ever and whose kingdom will be unending the one of whom Jacob speaks in blessing Judah in Genesis 49 is Jesus the man God the God man born of the virgin the life and the blessing of Judah in Genesis 49 and throughout the Old Testament anticipates the coming of Jesus. Now look back at Revelation 5, 5, for not only is Jesus the lion of Judah, he is also the root of David, the root of David. Now remember, we've talked about this, 600 years before Jesus' birth, the line of David appears to end. Okay, so we're at 600 B.C. Now let's just back up 100 years to 700 B.C. Because 100 years prior to that devastating moment in history when the kingdom of Judah is overrun and devastated by the Babylonians and the line of David appears to be at an end, 100 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah foresaw those events. A hundred years prior to those things occurring, the prophet Isaiah foresaw that they would happen. And in Isaiah 6.13, he compares this coming disaster, the fall of David's kingdom. He compares it to the hewing down of a mighty oak tree, leaving behind what only appears to be a dead stump. But it isn't a dead stump. For as Isaiah foresaw, the roots of this stump, the roots of this stump are still alive. And within this stump remains a holy seed. And from this stump, you're told in Isaiah chapter 11, from this stump burst forth a shoot, a branch, 
that will bear fruit. Well, that's 100 years prior to the moment. At that moment, 600 B.C., even as David's kingdom is being devastated, in Jeremiah 23, 5, the Lord through the prophet promises, I am going to raise up for David a righteous what? Who knows? A righteous what? Come on, Presbyterians, a little louder. A righteous what? Branch. Thank you, I'm deaf. You probably answered that clearly many times. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and he shall deal wisely, and he will execute justice and righteousness in the land. And this, now listen, this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Now, Matthew 2.23, in Matthew 2.23, you're told that scripture is fulfilled by Jesus being called a Nazarene. Well, how does that fulfill scripture? Some suggest it refers to the idea that people from the backwaters of Nazareth were despised, just as Jesus would be despised. But I'm persuaded that what we have here is a play on words. Because the word for branch is Nezer. The word for Nazareth is Netzer. Jesus being called a Nazarene, a Netzer, fulfills the Old Testament promise of a coming branch, a Nezer, born of the house of David, of the tribe of Judah. The promised branch, the Nezer, is Jesus, the Netzer. The branch is the Nazarene. Now, notice also, or just remember, here in Jeremiah 23, that the name for this branch, who will reign as king, remember this now, the name for this branch is the Lord our righteousness. Now, note carefully. His name is not the Lord is the righteous one, though obviously, clearly he's righteous. His name is the Lord, our righteousness. By him, through him, his people are declared righteous. How can that be? I mean, how can people like you and me stand before the Lord and have him judge us as perfectly righteous in his sight. Well, look at Revelation 5, 6. Look at Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. John here tells you, John now is the one describing Jesus. And he tells you that he looks like a lamb who was slain and yet is very much alive. Of course he's very much alive. Look back at the end of verse 5. At the end of verse 5, you're told he's the conqueror. And then you're told in verse 6, then his, and this is, you know, this is where the book of Revelation always kind of leaves us spinning in circles. 
Then you're told in verse 6 that in his role as conqueror, uh, or, or I should say that his role or as conqueror is, is emphasized by John giving you these strange details in verse 6 where you're told that the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. Now, Pastor Jones has you children to draw pictures. You draw that picture for me, okay? All right. You draw that picture for me. So he has seven horns. Seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. Well, in the Old Testament, horns symbolize power and authority, and the number seven symbolizes perfection. It is to the Old Testament that we must go to understand John's description in the book of Revelation. It is in the Old Testament that we are know we learn that horns are the symbol of authority and of power, and that seven is the number of perfection. John pictures Jesus as perfect in power and authority. And his seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, symbolize the Holy Spirit. And I can't take the time to argue all of that, so you're just going to have to trust me. His seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, symbolize the Holy Spirit who he sends throughout all the earth. To accomplish his conquest. He is the conqueror. He sends the Holy Spirit to accomplish his conquest by turning rebellious hearts into hearts alive unto him and bringing his judgment to bear upon those who dare to deny the one by whom and for whom they were made. And of course, I mean, I hope as you read about this lamb in Revelation 5 6, You hear John the baptizer loudly proclaim in John chapter 1 that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So how is it that the root of David, the branch who reigns as king, the one whose name is the Lord our righteousness, how is it that he can proclaim you to be perfectly righteous in his Side. It's because for you, Jesus having no sin, being the spotless Lamb of God, freely chooses to wrap himself in the filthy rags of your sin and in exchange reclothe you in the robes of his perfect righteousness. Now all of these descriptions here in John 5, 5 and 6, They're all based upon the Old Testament. I mean, I've talked about this before, and some of you will remember, some of you won't, but without the Old Testament, the baptizer calling Jesus the Lamb of God makes almost no sense. This is one adult man speaking to another adult man, and this is one adult man saying to another adult man, or saying about another adult man for all to hear, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is a senseless statement, except for the Old Testament. Except for the Old Testament. In the light of the events of the first Passover, 
When the blood of a lamb protects from death the firstborn, the one who represents the people of Israel in the, in the light of the many other lambs sacrificed in substitution for the people of Israel as they offered up their various sacrifices to the Lord in the light of all those lambs that were slain to temporarily cover the sins of the people in light of these Old Testament moments in history. You understand what the baptizer is saying. You understand when he tells you that Jesus, the firstborn son of God, is the final and perfect lamb of God. He came as conqueror to offer himself in your place to satisfy his justice, his justice which requires death as the payment for sin. The child born to Mary came so by grace through faith in him, he might justify you to be righteous, sinless, and perfectly holy in his sight. Now, the Revelation chapter 5 is saturated with Old Testament imagery. And in fact, I will suggest to you that Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 makes no sense except for the Old Testament scripture except for the old what's the key what do people always want to know what's the key to the book of Revelation let me tell you what the key is the Old Testament that's the key to the book of Revelation the Old Testament scriptures this passage these verses are just saturated with Old Testament imagery. Jesus is in truth the focus of all scripture. These scriptures written over 1,400 years by 40 or more authors because he is the lion of Judah, the root of David, the lamb that was slain but is now very much alive, the conqueror of sin and death and the grave. This is the one you worship. This is the one you love. This is the one you adore. This is the one you serve. And this is the one to whom you will now sing of giving your all as you sing these words. All for Jesus. All for Jesus. All my beings ransomed powers all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. Let's pray. The wonder of your love, the wonder of your grace and your mercy, the wonder that throughout all of history, you controlled its unfolding to bring about the redemption of your people. Lord, we praise you. We honor you. We serve you. We bow before you. And to you, by your grace, we give our all. And all God's people said, Amen.